Well, I missed you last week. You were here, I wasn't. I was enjoying part of my family, uh, Ben's family out in California, and went to church with them, but it's always good to come back. You are my family here. Well, this morning I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 14, and the message is entitled, The Longest Day. Now, for you mothers, this isn't necessarily a Mother's Day message, but there's not a mom that doesn't know about long days. Amen. And uh, as you, we become a grandparent, and then every once in a while, take care of the kids, it makes you wonder, how in the world did you have the energy to keep up with those little batteries? I mean, they all got those, uh, you know, Energizer bunny things, and they just don't stop till they just fall over. And uh, moms, it's, you're amazing. But Jesus is the one leads us. See, being a mom is spiritual work. There's a worldly saying that the one that rocks the cradle rules the world, and it's so true. The impact that moms have on their children lasts a lifetime. Good or bad, right? And Jesus knew about long days too. I'm sure this isn't the only one. This is one that we have the beginning and the end of this day. Let's pray and then we'll look at the word. Father, we thank you for the scripture so we can see as much as we can the life of our Savior. And Lord, it causes us to love him more and be in more amazement. So, Lord, apply it to our lives today. Give us understanding and application that we, by your grace, would strive to be more like him in every way. Lord, that we might become transparent and simply just reflectors of his grace, Lord, to the dark world around us. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You have to think a little bit the way this passage starts. Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. It's like, where was he? People coming from all over Israel. He's a ruler. He doesn't know what's going on. Well, it's like a lot of politicians. They're not in touch with the people. They're just very egocentric, just concerned about themselves. And Jesus' ministry is going on. And he knows about John the Baptist because John the Baptist pointed his sin out, so he threw him in prison. But who's Jesus? So this is the backstory to get to the day. It's the, the, it starts with at that time. This is the day starting. Now, Jesus has just come back from Nazareth. He's been rejected again by his own people that he grew up with that knew him. They reject him. He's been re- rejected by the leadership of Israel. And yet he continues to ministry. C.I. Schofield appropriately referred to the events of Matthew 14 through 23 as the ministry of the rejected king. But Jesus didn't come to minister for effect. He came to minister in obedience to the Father. How often do we get bogged down in ministry whether it's being a mom or a dad or maybe you're doing something that you feel is for the Lord and then you get tired and you get discouraged because people are not praising you, giving you the recognition that you need. Well, that's just a good wake-up call for you. 
If you're discouraged by the why, by you believe God's called you to do that, what you're doing, what you're involved in, and you're discouraged by the way other people are reacting, then it just shows you're doing it for the wrong reason. Get back to the basics. Get back to getting your eyes on the Lord and saying, no, Lord, this is for you. Because things don't always go the way we want. Now, we each one would like to be in control. Every one of us. If we could just be in control, life would be easier. If all the other people were fixed, right, and do what we want, life would be a whole lot smoother. Well, here's the amazing thing about heaven. I get fixed, you get fixed, so we can deal with everybody else. That's the greatest thing about heaven besides Jesus is he finally makes us perfect so we can handle things. So Herod is self-centered and he just notices Jesus. So he says to his servants, this is John the Baptist? Has he risen from the dead? And I'm sure he's surrounded himself with a bunch of single fans and they go, oh, maybe, yeah, right? Because if they're a servant, they've known somebody that's sick. They've known somebody that was in trouble and they took him to Jesus so they know who Jesus is. But, you know, well, maybe, I don't know. Herod was so full of himself, so he was just a lecherous, sinful man. And so he's fearful because he felt bad about putting John the Baptist to death. John the Baptist had pointed out his sin. On a trip to Rome, I suppose in the entourage, was his sister-in-law. So he seduced her, and she decided she was a wicked woman, probably only second to Jezebel in the Bible. And uh, so she decides, no, it's probably better with this Herod. So she stays married to him. She is also his niece. So not only is he taking somebody else's wife, his half-brother's wife, but he's also taking another half-brother's daughter to be his wife. So John points out, this is a lawful. You're supposed to be the king of the Jews. You're not following the laws of the Jews. Well, Herod doesn't really care about that. He just doesn't like people pointing that stuff out, like a lot of famous people. And so he throws him in prison. And he wanted to kill him, but he was kind of afraid of the people with the people because, he, you know, he wanted to keep some order because if he didn't keep order, Rome comes down and removes you. He was a puppet king. But there's no scorn like a woman's scorn. And the wife didn't forget it. So she's waiting for the day. So on his birthday, Herod's birthdays were famous for their sin. And she's got this plan. She's going to use her own daughter to turn on her husband. Because you look down at verse 6. The daughter comes out to dance, and it pleased Herod. John MacArthur points out the word Herod, or the word pleased means he was kind of turned on. And he was a drunk. He was a lecherous, incestuous, adulterous, drunk. But the wicked woman's got a plan. So in his drunkenness, he says before all of his guests, hey, anything you want, honey, up to half of my kingdom is yours. That's exactly what the mother wanted to hear. She goes to her mother, what do we want? What do we do this for? You tell them, I want the head of John the, Pla John the Baptist on a platter here now because she didn't want him coming out of his drunkenness and going, oh, hold it, that was bad. She wanted it done now. 
So they go to the dark prison cell that John the Baptist been held for a year or so, take his head off, and bring it in the middle of the banquet to this wicked woman. And the disciples come and carry the rest of his body away. Can you imagine the grief of his disciples? John has already sent a message to Jesus. What's going on? I thought you were going to purify the sons of Levi. I thought we were going to have revival here. And he says, you just remind John, the blind see, the sick are healed, the dead are raised. This is God's plan. John's message to his own disciples was, no, no. He must increase, I must decrease. But you need to understand the light of eternity this isn't a bad day for John. This was coronation day. This is the day he went home to heaven. The same as your day as a believer that you are released from this body and go home to be with the Lord. In our prayer meeting, sometimes we act like the worst thing can happen is, some, is a Christian dies. That's not the worst thing that happened. I, I think of our brother Ray. He was dying down in the hospital in Colorado and we were going back and forth and visiting him and praying with him, and he had joy to the end. And one time he went to sleep, and he woke up, and he said, oh, I'm still here? He was anticipating. Why? Because God does that. If we're willing to listen to the Lord and be obedient, submit to him, grace can change our hearts in the hardest trials, the most difficult times, to joy. John was elite, released. The angels welcomed John home with great triumph. He had run his course. He'd finished his race. He lived his life exactly the way the Lord wanted him to live it. But death is still an enemy. And so after his disciples bury him, they come and they find Jesus in his hometown of Capernaum. And that brings us to verse 13. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. You have to remember, while Jesus is doing his ministry and he's healing people and he's preaching the gospel, he's also discipling these apostles. And one of the things he's discipling them to is every once in a while, it's okay to unplug and take a break. You need that. But when they get there, what happens? They get there and 25,000 people you show up and you say, well, Pastor, I thought you said 5,000. No, no, 5,000 men plus women and children. John MacArthur said it's possible that crowd was 25,000 people. Now, it was probably afternoon by the time they got across, they were just at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And so they go across to the other side of the northern part. And he wants to have some time with the disciples. He, they want, he wants some time to grieve and teach them how to grieve and a time just to take a breath. But the people are there. And he has compassion on the people. You know, our lives would be so different as believers if we would just feel what Jesus felt and have compassion on people is difficult because we are so self-protective and you might feel like a weird magnet, like all the weird stuff ends up at your doorstep and why do you have to deal with this? Try to back off and look at those people the way Jesus did. 
These are hurting people that don't know the Lord. That's why we do what we do. We gather to worship the Lord as believers so that we might be encouraged, that our heads might be lifted so we can go back out and bring hope to the world. To that arrogant boss that you have to serve, teacher, coach, coworker. And Jesus has compassion. So what does he do? He begins to heal them. And it's getting to be laid, and so the disciples, they say, listen, it's late, verse 15, so send the crowds away that they may go to the villages and buy food for themselves. And he says to them, no, you feed them. He's discipling them. I hope this morning we can get this message. This is the Christian ministry. God doesn't give us assignments that we can do and we can afford. He doesn't do that. Why? Because he wants all the glory, because he's worthy of all the glory. So when everything's said and done, whether it's building a building or planning a church or going on a mission trip, he puts us in those situations and we say, Lord, we can't do this. And that's what the disciples said. We only have a few loaves and a couple of fishes. You know, when we built this building, we didn't have a lot of you here. We had mostly college students and some young families. And yet we knew that God had given this assignment. I remember the day that we had a meeting and the elders said, no, this is what we're going to do. And then the Lord provided somebody that wanted to buy five acres of our land just for a little bit, just for a little bit. Probably just so the bank would say yes to us. So we found Christian Credit Union down in Colorado Springs and they said, well, yeah, you got a contract on that land for a million bucks? Sure, we'll give you a loan for a million bucks. So we ordered the timbers and we got everything coming. And then the Lord pulled the rug out from under us, kind of. Situation came up where those people said, no, we're not going to build in the winter. We can't do that. City made some decisions. And so they went away. And we went, wow. Now what are we going to do? And faithful, elder, rich, Tremaine said, fellas, we just saw how God could do it in one, in one fell swoop. Now we're going to see how God can do it a month at a time. And do you know that we've been seeing God work that way for 35 years here? Oh, it never gets easier. About the time you think, okay, good. God did that, great. Pass, I don't need to have that, that pop quiz anymore. And what does he do? Whether you're a mom or a dad or a businessman or a businesswoman, he's got another one. Now, Romans 5 says, we've been through those trials, and the next trial shouldn't be a problem because now you have, what, experience. But just like the apostles, it's not, it's not easy. But Jesus says, bring them to me. If this is God's assignment, that's the challenge for us in our business, in our church, in our personal lives. Is this God's assignment? If it's God's assignment, then he's going to provide. And that will increase our faith and it will increase our worship. Jesus says, bring them to me. 
Then he orders them. He teaches them something else about ministry. While we want ministry to always be life-giving and directed by God, there's also order. There's a balance in the order. We don't order things so they're sterile, but he has, he, so he orders the people to set down in groups. And so they all set down. And we don't, we're not told how the miracle took place. Now, I think the Lord just keeps baking the bread and whether breaking the bread and the fish and whether it happens as they give it out, it just keeps filling up their, their little container. There's 12 baskets left over. I don't think they're picking up litter from what people dropped out of people's mouths. I think what Jesus provided right there, there were 12 baskets left over. And another ministry. You feed other people. You do what God has assigned you to do. There'll be something for you because what if there's not enough for them to eat? They're hungry too. That's why they wanted to send the people away so they could just get back across the lake, get home to Capernaum, and get something to eat. This has been a long day. There's 12 baskets left over. And I think as the apostles are sitting down to begin to eat themselves, they hear the rumble of the people. And in John 6, the parallel account says that the people say, we're going to make this guy king. I mean, this guy can heal everybody. He can raise people from the dead. So if we got an army and somebody gets killed, whoop, back to life. And the army, that you know, we know that the army goes forward on its belly, so he can feed the armies. He's the king. He can provide our every need. They didn't think they had a problem with their sin. They just needed a political leader that would give them things, make their life easier. And so it says that immediately he forced the disciples to go. Why? Because that sounded good to them too, right? They're sitting around thinking, we see that come up later in the, in the narrative that they're trying to figure out who gets the top cabinet positions in the kingdom. And then James and John even go and say, listen, mom, would you go talk to Jesus? I think if you talk to him, he can't say no to a woman. You know, I mean, he, yeah. And then we can be one on his right and one on his left when he rules. So they're thinking about that themselves. This is good. The people are all for us. But the Lord knows this is not the plan. And so he says, you're going back to Capernaum. They don't know they're going to be tested further. So he has to force them into the boat the people have eaten all they can eat. And then he tells them it's time to go home. So he disperses the crowd and he goes up higher to pray. Now the Lord knew there was a test coming. He knows. I think in America today, even good churches have bought into this idea that Jesus saved you so you can just have an easier life no, God saved you to make something of you. Ian Bounds said in his book, Preacher and Prayer, that men like to make much of a program, but God wants to make much of a man. So that no flesh can boast, they can look at that man and say, wow, I didn't see that. That must have been God. And he is preparing them for things that are going to happen to them. 
And so he sends them out. And at the fourth watch of the night, he's praying and been with the Lord. So this is a long day. I don't know if the father tells him, all right, it's time to go get your savior, your crew. This storm has come up. Those winds come down out of the north like crazy, and they just stir this place up. They've been, these are seasoned fishermen, and they think they're going to die. They have been rowing all night, and they have gotten about three or four miles. And they've headed towards Capernaum, but it keeps pushing against them. So they're rowing, and they're rowing, and they're rowing, and it goes from desperation to terror because here comes a spirit walking on the water, they think. And they scream out, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, you don't have to be afraid, it's just me. What? Has anybody ever heard of somebody just walking on the water through a storm? And Peter has just this little mustard seed of faith. I think it came from the Father. If it's you, Lord, just command me to come to you. It's amazing. I want to do that too. When you see Jesus and you read about him and you get to know, don't you want to be like him? To be able to stand in the face of your persecutors, those that want to trip you up, those people that are there to destroy your life, and just be collected and cool? Are we supposed to give our taxes to Caesar or not? And so he says, do you have a coin? They're trapping him so they can make sure Rome puts him to death. Well, yeah, here's a coin. Well, whose face is on the coin? Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give God what belongs to God. At every point, he stopped them in their arguments. And when they said, don't you know, Pilate says, don't you know I have the power to release you or to kill you? Jesus says, cool, he says, you would have no power except God gave it to you. I want those answers. I want that spirit. Do you know that's the spirit that lives within you? If you don't quench it, if you fill yourself up, maybe anger is your problem. Maybe controlling things is your problem. When we're saturated with the Holy Spirit, we're like Christ. Now, being saturated with the Holy Spirit is not some existential experience. The Bible says that is being filled up with the Word of God. Be ye being filled with the Spirit, it says. It's command. Then in Colossians 3, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So the Holy Spirit has something to use to give you that strength to be obedient in the moment. Don't you want to be like Jesus? Peter did. So he steps out on the water, and Peter walked on the water. That's amazing. He's the only other guy that I know of ever experienced that besides the Lord. He walked on the water. But then he took his eyes off, what, the Lord, and got him on the experience. We've been there before. We feel like God's called us to something. 
we get in the middle of it because of bills or costs or stress relationship. We say, oh, Lord, Lord, this is too much for me. I can't handle this. And then we make up our own theology. You know, Jesus wouldn't want me to have to suffer this way. So I feel called to quit. Let me quit. And I'll give everybody my reasons, throw a lot of other people on the bus, so that the Lord knows, including the Lord, that I'm okay. It's okay for me to quit. Peter started looking at the circumstances. Guys got his eyes off the Lord, and he began to sink. And he stepped out there, probably with all his clothes on, so he's going down fast. And the Lord reaches out to him. He says, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand. So he must have got almost there. Almost there. And he says, oh, you little faith. Why did you doubt? He was saying to Peter, oh, man, you almost had it. You almost had it. He wasn't rebuking him like, oh, what a loser. Peter actually got out of the boat. Peter, you almost had it. You know, Peter was going to get it. He was going to figure it out. And as soon as he steps in the boat, the storm's over. And then the apostles are blown away again. Oh, surely you're the Lord. What? I mean, they've been with them seeing thousands healed. Now, 25,000 people fed from this couple loaves and fishes, and now they're convinced? Listen, that's our life, folks. You say you believe, right? Till the next test, and you're like, oh, and you begin to panic. And the first step of panic is trying to figure it all out yourself. Okay, I got this handled. I got away. If this doesn't work, I'm going to quit. But I'll try this first. I'm going to get an attitude. People, the Lord shouldn't be asking me to do stuff like this, and we might blame somebody else for asking us, but, but the Lord shouldn't be asking me to do these things. And we miss the amazing opportunity of walking on the water, but then Jesus shows up and saves us and shows himself strong because he always does. He always does. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because the shepherd is with me. Hmm. How many believers just don't want to trust the shepherd and they're belligerent in it? I'm not going to do that. All right. He's still there. But you could be paralyzed with fear. Or you could be amazed over and over and over about what a God you serve. You know the greatest thing about what the Lord does in our life is how he changes us, right? And he matures us and later you're looking back and you go, oh, Lord, we just did that. That's amazing. That used to just blow me up. And we just, wow. You are the Lord. It wasn't that they didn't believe before. But their faith is growing deeper, certainly. Whoa, why are we not totally convinced of... And, and I think when we get through those times, we say, why do we doubt? We don't have, it doesn't have to be the Lord. Why do we doubt? 
oh, to come to the trial that we just say, okay, Lord, we're just going to be obedient. We can't do this. We don't have the money for this. We don't have the strength or the wisdom for this. But we believe you've assigned this, so okay, here we go. We're going to follow you. Jesus doesn't ask us to lead. He said, follow me. Just bring it to me. So you can be convinced and your faith can grow even deeper. Now remember, this is a long day, folks. And as soon as the people see that it's him, he's probably landed there in Gennesaret, which is just a little bit south of Capernaum, and they're walking back home, and here come the people again. He's back home, and people have been waiting. They brought their sick people, not knowing they were going to be across the lake and not there. And people start coming again. And listen, it says there, they implored him. Could we just touch the hem of your garden? Why would they do that? Jesus took time with every person. You know, at the end of John, the Bible says, if all the works of Jesus were written and the skies were parchment, they could not contain all the works that Jesus did. Why? Because every single time he healed someone, there's a whole story that goes along with that. And I think they saw that Jesus was exhausted. And they were saying, Lord, you, you don't have to take time with me. Just, could we just touch the hem of your garment? Don't go away, Lord. Because he was God, but he was also man. Sometimes the greatest things we do for the Lord is when we're exhausted. When we're terrified. That's what Peter said. Ah, and you know, he's always speaking before the brain kind of engaged. Ah, Lord, tell me to come to you. He probably, as he stepped on the boat, what did I just say, right? All the emotions that they had experienced. The Lord Jesus was building them and now is exhaustion. And he's telling them, listen, even though we needed a break and it's okay to take a break, have compassion on people. Ministry is the priority. And the people can see, I think he's exhausted. I think that's what the text is telling us. Lord, you, you don't have to even say anything. Just, just pass by. And the Bible says that whoever touched his garment was healed. What a savior. What a savior. He doesn't ask us to do anything he's not gone through himself. I've told people over the years, looking at Jesus' life, you want a spiritual feeling? It's not seeing, it's not just singing the song, you know, we love to shout your name. It's exhaustion and faithfully just doing what you need to do. Taking care of the little one that's been sick all night. Showing up for a Bible study when only one guy's there. That's the Lord. Faithfulness. Father, we thank you for the story of our Savior, the truth of the gospel, his life. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day, he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Oh, Lord, in the meantime, give us tender hearts to be convicted 
of the things that distract us from obedience, our own personalities, the world's opinion like, like Herod, the trials. Lord, give us a sharper and sharper focus on you that we might understand clearly your assignments and walk closely that we might see your mighty works. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.